feeling the presence of the body, the mood of the afternoon, how this moment is right now. Feeling of heat, movement of air, sounds of the street, my voice, the pull of gravity, the earth drawing our body to it. All of these are surrounded by, permeated by the sound of silence. All of it happens here within this sphere of our awareness. It's known right here. It all happens here. So let the attention rest, being this spacious listening awareness, this knowing. Being the space that receives all sound, or feeling, or mood. Inspiration or fear, energy or weariness, whatever it might be. Be the knowing of it here. presence of the nada sound be that which helps us to remember that indeed it all happens here. This is all known here within the mind, within this very heart of ours. This is where it happens. The world happens here.
Just being the listening heart, listening to the sounds of the room, the road, listening to the sounds of our thoughts, of the world. One of the insidious obstructions to true clarity, to a genuine openness, genuine unentangled participating, is the habits of identification, the habit of believing I am the thinker, I am the talker, I am the, the feeler, the one who is experiencing. These memories are mine. This physical sensation is mine. So we can use this fertile space of our awareness to explore, to examine that, that habit of identification much more directly. When the mind is quite still, steady, the attention resting in the present moment, listening, listening to the nada sound as it uh, fills the space of our, our mind. And bring into that space, ask the question, invite into the space this question, who am I? Who am I? And it's not just a matter of repeating the words, but to genuinely ask the question. 
drop the question into that fertile space. And before any verbal answers appear, notice what happens. We genuinely pose that kind of inquiry. Listening to the silence and thinking, who? Who am I? Who? Who am I? Now, if you notice, we pay attention to the the nada sound, listening to that, before we pose the question, then dropping the question in there. When you reach the end of the question, there's a gap. The mind hesitates for a moment before any kind of verbal answer appears. Because when that question is posed in the silence of the mind, in a genuine way, the presumptuousness of even thinking the word I reveals itself, trips over its own feet. And for a moment, the thinking mind has nothing to say. So the point of this practice is then to keep the attention on that gap before all the verbal answers arise, even if it's just half a second, to notice. When you ask, who am I? In a moment, all ideation falls away. There's brightness, simplicity, no sense of self. And then the thinking mind wades in and says, well, of course, I'm Susan, I'm Harry, I'm George, I'm I'm Stephanie, that's who I am. Or I'm old, I'm young, I'm out of here. But before all that ideation kicks in, Notice what happens. So we're not looking for a verbal answer. The point of this practice is not to try and figure out the, quote, right, unquote, answer. Because there isn't one. We're not looking for a verbal answer. We're using this to interrupt the habitual self-creation program. That's all. So bringing the mind back to quietude, 
listening to the nada sound and ask who am I? Let the attention rest on that gap. See if it can stay there. Rest in that gap. An undefined, unformed quality of being.
we don't use this kind of practice like a, a repeating a mantra. It's not just a reciting the words in a habitual way. But uh, it relies on a genuine posing of a question or making a statement. But the mind being what it is, it very easily gets inured to any kind of pattern of perception. So after a time it can be that even sincerely asking, who am I? ceases to bring about that, that hesitation. That same kind of gap is not opened up. The habitual mind finds a way of filling in the cracks. So we can shift the question around to ask, who is it that's asking this question? Who does this mind belong to? We can get creative. But the, the point is, not the question that we ask, which is called the head or the hua in Chinese, but the tail, the gap that comes after, that's the tou. So together they're called the hua tou, the head and the tail. The tail, in this instance, is the important bit. So you can move the question around. Who's the owner of this experience? Who wants to know? Not to just try and be clever with ourselves or just change things because we're bored, but to bring up a question or even a statement that challenges our habitual way of seeing things, our complacency, that causes that hesitation, that moment of, oh, where the gap opens up and there's a purity, simplicity, peacefulness, a brightness of mind. along with using a question in the same spirit, the same kind of practice we can develop through making a statement. Often just using our own name, just stating our own name with no, no added story, just voicing our own name internally can have a very powerful effect. In the same fashion to steady the mind, steady the attention in the present, listening to the nada sound. Let everything be as open and as clear and still as possible. And then just deliberately think your own name. Invite that into the silence of the mind. Amaro, Amaro, Mary Grace, 
Rick. And our own name, which is so familiar to us, which we use all the time, can suddenly feel very, very weird. Because suddenly it's revealed the presumptions about what that word is referring to. Oh, how strange to put a, a name on this. Oh. So this too can open up that same kind of a gap to create that tail. Just to notice that weird, mysterious wonder, even at the sound of our own name. Oh, what is that? And to stay with that spaciousness, that wonderment, that gap. Allow the heart to rest in that. To be that spacious, attentive knowing. Selfless. Straightforward. Bright.
I'd like to leave this um, last uh, period of the day together. We have about 45 minutes um, of our allotted time uh, left today, so uh, I'd like to open this up for questions, dialogue, if um, there are any questions remaining that have not uh, dissolved completely. Yes. Can you speak a little bit more about working with the not the sound or walking? I found it to be very difficult because there's a lot going on, a lot of stimuli. Mm-hmm. The eyes open, it's hard for me. It's the most difficult uh, posture to then add in the not sound. So could you maybe speak a little bit more about how we might do that? Or it's just about a practice thing. <laughs> that, in a way, one of the reasons why I um, I suggested that is because to, to demonstrate how difficult, how much more difficult it is. But also, when you can do it, how how handy it is, what a difference it makes. Because there, there's this quality of um, of perspective that it, it it brings. I find that it keeps everything within a perspective of, oh right, this is. This is all just sankharas arising and passing away. These are just conditioned formations. That's, that's what this is. Oh, right, it's not Santa Cruz. That's a convenient fiction that we use to talk about this particular experience. <laughs> the, uh, and so that uh, just seeing how tricky it is but then it's like with any kind of practice. It's like if you want to learn to play the piano or learn a language, you hit a lot of bum notes when you start. And you just keep trying and trying, and then slowly but surely your fingers learn where to go. And you can bring it together. So just uh, what I would suggest is just setting goals for yourself during the course of the day. Okay, during the next hour, rather than say all day long, I'm going to spend the entire day listening to the Nada sound. Just make, you want to make achievable goals. <laughs> so just say, okay, for the next hour, or for this first hour of the day while I'm eating my breakfast or whatever, okay, let's see how much of the time I can, I can keep remembering that. And then, um, and then you know, so setting that as a particular practice. And then also just um, in... Uh, in the course of the day, just letting yourself remember that. Say, oh, I could. Uh, I don't just have to be sitting here just ruminating or getting bored with this meeting. I could listen to the Nada sound. So, one of the, the ways that Ajahn Sumedho developed it a lot was sitting in the interminable English Sangha Trust meetings, <laughs> kind of the monastery uh, sort of admin committee meetings. That, uh, he would uh, he would be sitting there. You know, eyes wide open, but uh, and apparently paying full attention to the meeting, but actually also just listening to the nada sound. And he said, "Yeah, the meetings became very bearable then." So he wasn't switching off; he was just there was just something that kept it all within a context, rather than I'm waiting for this meeting to be over. So there's many different places during the day that are, are less sort of quiet or less sort of busy or demanding. 
where you can you can bring that in, like waiting for in a in a, a line at the coffee shop, um, instead of just reading all the kind of mocha frappuccino, <laughs> you know, the list of the ones that you're not going to buy. Um, you could you know, stand there and just be you know, turning to the the inner sound. So just developing in little bits here and there, and then just developing the habit. And then slowly but surely it becomes easier. How was it for other people with the walking? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, what's real is not conceivable. So that's why when the conceiving mind tries to grope and, and, and find an, an it, or a there there, mm-hmm. you know, even in Oakland, you know, <laughs> the, uh, it, it can't find it, because that, you know, the, like I was saying at the beginning of the day, I think about the Dhamma is, is here and now, like the Many of the attributes of the of the nada sound mirror or, or are, um, are representations of that, those qualities that are possessed by the dhamma. So dhamma means reality. So you can't uh, you can point to it. That's why it's one of its qualities to be realized by each per- each person for themselves. It's because you, you can't conceive it. But what's real is both the quality of awareness, that, that quality of knowing, is real. Um, but you, you can't really call it a thing. I mean, you can get into hair-splitting debates about Abhidhamma and like, well, 
the difference between consciousness and awareness and so on. But that quality of transcendent awareness, if it wasn't transcendent, there would be no liberation possible. It's because there is a quality of awareness that is not entangled with the five khandhas, it's not conditioned, it's not bound to the, the realm of beginning and ending. Because that attribute of our being is real, therefore liberation is possible. If all, if all awareness was conditioned, was, was, was bound by time and, and, and beginning and ending, then liberation would be impossible. So it's because there is a, an aspect of our of awareness which is transcendent and intrinsically liberated. It's by tapping into that, in a way, that the, sort of the core, the quintessential quality of, of awareness. Then we find that, that place in us which is liberated, which is also why we're always here. But your entire life, wherever you were, it was always here, right? Well, that's because um, our, uh, well, one way of talking about it is that you know, the, the world of space is, a, is another construct of perception. And that uh, we, it's a convenient fiction that sort of talks about how the objects are arranged in relationship to each other. But um, that throughout our life, wherever we were, there was always this here-ness, and the rest of the world is all spread around us. Right? So that then that, uh, that means we can't actually get anywhere. Because when we get there, it's still here. Right? I'm not trying to just be abstruse. And I know this has been a, a sort of a hot, stuffy afternoon, so forgive me, you know, tell me if, if I lose you. But one of, one of the, the um, along with the delusion of self, and like that, that inquiry into using who am I to cut through that delusion of self, one of the interesting things is that even, and this, I, I, I've been a, a monk for a long time before I even had a, a clue of this. Even when you have a clear insight to the fact that, that all, all dhammas are not self, that the body is not self, personality is not self, that, that all those um, uh, representations are not truly who and what we are, uh, there can, that can be a really clear insight, but there can still be this fundamental delusion that there's a place where this is all being experienced. Right? And that there's other places as well. And I, and I suddenly realized, oh, the mind creates this feeling of, of locality, or locatedness. And that's also a thing we have to let, let go of. The Dhamma is also not only timeless and selfless, it's also unlocated. And that it doesn't, it doesn't have a a place in space. That's why we say, you know, the, the truth is everywhere, or you know, everything is part of nature. Uh, it's, it's those things are related. So when we talk about re- reality, that's why we say the Dhamma is here and now. It's to be seen by looking inward. It's always to be found within ourselves, because there's there's no place where you can be that's away from nature, <laughs> away from that reality. Is that making sense? Right, exactly. So, <laughs> well, so that, that's why one of the reasons why I wanted to describe that meditation on, on who am I is also you can use that to, to explore this quality of, 
of non-locality. So, like, and so for that, I would. So when I started to notice that, oh, even though there's no feeling of self, there's definitely a, a feeling of as a, a hereness, as a, a place where it feels like it's happening. So I began to use the question, where is here? Where is here? And that would have the same effect. There'd be this of oh, <laughs> that punctures that 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 that. At that habit of mind that's creating, oh, I'm in this place, this is the center of experience, and it's not over there, it's here. Um, and so it's a, it's a subtle kind of attachment, just like this, the attachment to the feeling of I. It's a subtle attachment, but very deeply rooted. And uh, they, uh, the Buddha said that you know, the, un, the unconditioned, the unborn, the uncreated, that ult- the fundamental aspect of reality, he says, uh, it's... Um, it, within it, there is no, there's no, no here, no there, no place in between the two. It's one of the ways he described it. That it's outside of the realm of space. Um, so you can use to get to the aha. You can use that same kind of a very direct inquiry, and then, or just using a word like hereness, or or uh, or just here. And just like uh, with the with the meditation on your own name, just making a, a uh, like a conceptual statement about that. I don't know how it is how it is for you, but when when I do that, say with my name, something goes. Oh, even though I've been I've been doing this for years and I've been teaching this dozens of times, even when I'm saying it, I still get that. Oh, <laughs> that really is strange, <laughs> Amaro. Huh. What is that? Because there's an intuitive sense of that which is the referent, that which is the, the, the word is, the name is referring to, is not really a thing. <laughs> it's not confined, it's not limited, it's not male or female or human or here or there or anything. That reality. So it's, it, the, the image that came to mind when I first began to explore this is that it was rather like writing with a flashlight on a waterfall. You know, it's like nothing's sticking here. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, we're not getting a, we're not making much of an impression on this. You know, like writing you know, Amaro with a, with a flashlight on a waterfall. It's like, <laughs> and so to the ego, that's deeply threatening and very upsetting and confusing. But when, if you notice what it feels like in the heart, it's like, right? Oh, okay, that's good. There's a feeling of refreshment and, ah. So any of those approaches, so you're using the reflective mind, you're using the the capacity to think. It's it's verbal thought, but used in the context of that uh, a clear and uh, uncluttered awareness. And it becomes a very powerful tool for opening up the delusions that, that we experience. So that's how to arrive at it. Because just abstruse philosophy on its own is just a total waste of time. You know, it's just spelling it all out is a waste of time. Because if you, you know, it's, you can just learn that or understand it or memorize it, and then just use it to take a position about against somebody else who thinks differently, <laughs> which is completely useless. So the point is taking up the, the principle and say, okay, now what was that about? Now, how did that go? You know. And then 
getting to, to know that, ah, moment. Okay, that's it. And even if it's just for half a second, okay, so the light came on, right? You've been in the dark for 10,000 years. The light came on, okay, now you know. You can't, you can't really forget that. Now, what was that? <laughs> and so then, just having, uh, letting that, that uh, be a, uh, a track that we develop. That we recognize that there's there's a, there's some subtle clinging going on to self to time to to location, and then you can, and using that kind of reflection to to explore it, and then the the nada using the nada sound, I find is a very helpful backup to that because, um, it, as as we've been saying, it helps to keep everything within a context that it's. It's uh, uh, in a way re- reminding you that this is a, uh, a practice that's being done. It's, just, it's all happening within the mind, and also that the it keeps the attention sharp, keeps the, the a level of, of alertness high, so that then these subtle qualities of of attachment, when we can discern them clearly, it's not just all happening in a bit of a, a blur of not full consciousness, but it's. It's it's got the the lights are, are bright. It's like in the operating theater, the <laughs> the arc lamps are on, so you know you can see clearly what's go- exactly what's going on without without any kind of delusion. So I find it works rather like that. But it's like getting the when you need the arc lamps, you know, get them on. <laughs> Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And uh, in um, when they did this new edition of um, this book, that was exactly what Ajahn Sumedho said in his little forward. He said, um, "Actually, uh, I was I was wrong about someone handing him the book, the way way of inner vigilance. He found it in the uh, in the." Um, the bookstore at the uh, Buddhist Society Summer School, and he just he liked the picture on the cover and the name of the book. He said, um, "I'll just read the forward for you. It's quite, it's just quite brief." I'm delighted that Edward Salim Mikhail's *The Way of Inner Vigilance* is being republished in this new edition entitled *The Law of Attention*. I remember finding this book at the Buddhist Society's Summer School about 25 years ago. It had a photograph of a Buddha image on the cover, and I liked the title, so I started skimming through it. The chapters on Nada Yoga especially intrigued me because I'd discovered this inner sound many years before but had never heard or read any reference to this in the Pali Canon. I had developed a meditation practice referring to this background vibration and experienced great benefits in developing mindfulness while letting go of any thoughts. It allowed a perspective of transcendent awareness where one could reflect on the mental states that arise and cease in consciousness. I appreciate Edward Salim Mikhail's Instructions on how to integrate awareness into daily life. Uh, he was not a Buddhist. In a, Edward Salim Mikhail was not a Buddhist in a traditional way, but I have recommended this book to many Buddhists who find his references and instructions on Nadi Yoga very helpful in cultivating mindfulness. So that um, developing mindfulness while letting go of any thoughts. So the letting go of thoughts doesn't mean to say necessarily that the thoughts stop, but it's it can be even that. The thoughts go chattering on, but the, you know, recognize, well, there's, 
there she goes again. <laughs> it's just the, the inner commentator doing its thing. So, um, uh, that, that, and that's exactly how I find it to be. So it's not a matter of necessarily stopping thinking from happening altogether. It's, it's also useful, even while the, the thought murmurings and churnings are going on. So, any other questions? Diligent effortlessness. Diligent effortlessness. So I was playing with that today about, and, <coughs> and noticing that there was truly a way in which I had to do nothing except listen. Mm-hmm. It wasn't very much. I didn't make a lot of effort. So, um, and I think that's an interesting notion because we're so, I mean, if there's any one thing that messes people up in their meditation practice, Well, uh, it's in a sense, it's exactly that that uh, I've been talking about, um, because the, that's that's all to do with becoming bhava, and that I I talk about it endlessly on, on retreats and, and uh, in dhamma talks, and that because it's we're a, a real this is the land of the rugged individualist, you know, the Protestant work ethic. You know, you get out and you you do it, you make it happen, and that's has its tremendous um, worth and value. But it also means that then when there's a, there's a, a not doing, it seems like non, not, it seems like not life. <laughs> or sort of anti, anti-life, or you're, you're not, you're, you're, check, you're checking out, you're, you're not involved. Um, because we associate that quality of, of driving towards a goal or doing this as being synonymous with with being alive and being engaged. Um, so that's why that, that statement in Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. <laughs> I find that very powerful because it's also the partner of becoming, the bhava tanha, the desire to become. Its twin is vibhava tanha, which is the desire to to not be, to the desire to to be annihilated. So, so letting go of the desire to become doesn't mean uh, switching off or checking out or just dissolving, you know. um, but it's uh, it's that middle way, and that's why one of the reasons why the Buddha was inclined not to even teach in the first place after the Enlightenment. He said, um, "To uh, uh, abandoning abandoning relishing for becoming, abandoning abandoning the relishing of being without relishing non-being." There is no people in the world who can really understand this. <laughs> the world is committed to being, to becoming. It, it delights in that. It's absorbed in that. It's, it's uh, committed to that. And so, that he said, that there's no point in me even trying to explain this to anybody because no one's going to get it. Uh, so, that's when the Brahma 
deity Sahampati beamed down and said, please, <laughs> for the sake of those with a little dust in their eyes, please teach your understanding. And then the Buddha was persuaded. But that's interesting that it's such a subtle point that the Buddha was disinclined after all those gazillions of lifetimes of bodhisattvahood, when he finally arrived at full and total uh, enlightenment, his first you know, inclination was, it's not worth it. <laughs> there's, they're too thick. He <laughs> said, the phrase was, this will be wearisome and troublesome for me. <laughs> so he was inclined to go off and be a hermit. You know. But uh, fortunately, Sahampati intervened. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but uh, that that quality of of um, being and doing and getting it seems so um, normal and so right and so good and also there's a feeling of of satisfaction there is that relish of engagement and uh, being excited being interested you know these are words that are taken to be you know well, what's wrong with being excited. What's wrong with being interested? You know, this really is a you know, this this really is a nihilistic path. But it's not that it's not that uh, nihilism is being uh, praised. But there's this middle way where you don't have to be excited to feel totally alive. You don't have to be interested in something to be totally alive. And it's because we're we have, so in a way, it's the bhava is the drug of choice. That's the real, always doing something, going somewhere, being being something, getting getting an achievement. I went to two graduation ceremonies yesterday. I gave a talk at the one at City of Ten Thousand Buddhas School, and then I went to uh, somebody, uh, the uh, child of, uh, well, some people who go to the family program events. There, one of their kids was graduating. They asked me to go along. This is a kind of becoming fest. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fine in its own way, and it's got its own purpose in, in our lives, but uh, uh, there's so much that's pinned on you know, getting somewhere, doing something, making something of yourself, and on a, on a certain worldly level, great, fine, excellent, you know, put up that house, you know, plant the veggies, you know, start the meditation center. <laughs> but if, but, if we only feel alive when we've got that project on, what do we do when we're not engaged? What do we do if we're not at the, uh, planting the veggies? Huh? We retire. Yeah, we retire. <laughs> yeah. But even when we're retired, it's hard to actually be still. You know, that there's that, you know, how many people drop dead six months after their retirement? Because their the, drug of, of choice of, of who I am is t- totally tied up with the, the work scene or the, um, the value system of the people that you live with. It's a, uh, so, and I'm not trying to get into a diatribe, but it's really, this is a really important, important point of the teaching because if we can find that place of diligent effortlessness or undistracted non-meditation, you find that, oh, now, now I'm really alive. <laughs> oh no, this is, this is real life. <laughs> where there isn't that, that, that being swept up in the becoming. And one simple way of getting a feeling for this is with the walking meditation, where you can, and again, it's using that sense of the, the, uh, the world is in the mind, that you can walk 
And the body can be walking, but there's this genuine recognition that I am not going anywhere. Because with every step, and between every step, I'm here. There's here-ness. And walking meditation is supremely pointless. <laughs> I think everyone would agree, because as soon as you've achieved your goal, you turn around and go back again. You know, you're really not, the clue is very, very large. You're really not trying to get anywhere. <laughs> it's a not about progress. But what you can do with the walking meditation is, is let, let go of the, the, the person who's doing the walking and just be that awareness which knows walking happening. Because like, say I'm moving my hand, like the, my hand is moving, but that which knows the movement isn't moving. There's movement, there's change. Uh, but that which knows the change isn't changing. Right? So that the letting go of the becoming, the becoming is always with attachment to the movement and getting our sense of, of worth or of, or of being, beingness, our sense of aliveness is coming from that doingness. But if that's, that uh, is what we've committed ourselves to and we can't do anymore, or the, the, our, our favorite kinds of doing are not available to us, we can't think straight. We can't remember where we left our keys or the name of our family members. You know, when you can't, you don't have the physical mobility to engage. Then there's, this, uh, or, or this, as, a, as a society, you're no longer interesting as a person. You're no longer someone want, others want to be around. Then there's this terrible depression and loneliness and lostness. So that to find a way to tap into that quality of being truly alive, but not without being swept up in the becoming way. This is extraordinarily valuable. So just to, to be able to see, oh yeah, the body's moving, but there is stillness. So the cessation of Nibbana is not about freezing the world and just stopping everything cold, even though Nibbana means coolness. <laughs> it's cooling off the, the, sort of the heated interaction with things. So there's movement, but the cessation of becoming is that there's no longer the, the heart is no longer tied to that movement. It's not tied to the beginnings and endings of births and deaths. So the movement is happening, but there's a, there's a, a, a non-entanglement with it. But it's not a, a, a kind of neurotic dissociation either. That's why I like the phrase unentangled participating. So I don't, I don't really like the idea of the observer or the watcher because that creates a sort of false... Uh, distance, but uh, what I, I see more is what's the 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 goal of the practice. What's potential for us is that there can be this total aliveness, but with no becoming. That you're totally with li and with life and with what's going on and with the the people around you and what's useful in any one moment, but uh, you're not you're not tied to it going in any particular particular direction, and you're not needing to. Uh, to have that thrill of getting somewhere or doing something or being someone that, that, that's that's like a, a drug that you've you've given up <laughs> like you know cigarettes and sugar and caffeine and all of those other ones does this make sense yeah. so it's a it's a subtle point but it's it's so counter and also the, the, the fact that the Buddha was inclined not to bother <laughs> on account of just this this is really hard to understand. Who's going to get this? 
But if we can get it, then the mysterious thing is that when we we learn that 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 art of of letting life live itself, we find our, our, ourselves actually being able to function more effectively, rather than making ourselves numb or or, or uh, socially incapable or or uh, 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 disengaged or having to retreat, retreat off to the mountains. We find that we can function fully and completely in a far more unobstructed way. It's very mysterious how it works. Like you. You let go of that that uh, compulsive becoming, uh, uh, and then uh, out of a uh, a quality of of love for the world, really. And then you find your but in that letting go, you find yourself far more closely attuned to it than you were when you were trying to <laughs> chase after it and and be and do and get. So the being and doing and getting happens, but without that that uh, agitated compulsion that's throwing things off balance all the time. That makes sense? Yeah, Kokyo. Did the Buddha teach about the desire for non-becoming as a response to people who have heard about the problems of the desire for becoming? Or are there other... other, Would would somebody have a desire for non-becoming without having heard about this? Oh yeah, I mean, just well. Why do I mean? Why do people want to veg out? You know, Saturday afternoon. How many people are are spending their Saturday afternoons reflecting on becoming and non-becoming? Most are parked. In, oh, a lot of people are parked in front of their TVs with a can of beer and a packet of potato chips, or or the equivalent thereof. <laughs> you know, the vibhavadhanha uh, is manifested in just any way of getting wiped out. Tolstoy wrote this wonderful little book called um, uh, Why Do Men Choose to Stupefy Themselves? <laughs> it's a little-known work of Tolstoy. It is. It's a Tolstoy book. Why Do Men Stupefy Themselves? And it's about vibhavatanha. You know. And it's because if, if we, you want, you know, what you're feeling is painful or difficult or stressful, the easiest thing to do is just blot it out, stop feeling, to, to drink and forget. To, stup- to get stupefied, and you know, Saturday afternoon, maybe it's the sports, but you know, Saturday night, <laughs> you have this uh, the Bhavatanhavi Bhavatanha fest every weekend. <laughs> you know, when I was a teenager, the the goal of Saturday night was getting wasted. To get wasted, you know, <laughs> to, to be obliterated wasn't. That, I mean, that's the language that the crowd I moved in used to use. Go out and get obliterated. I mean, that's a clue. <laughs> so obviously, most people are not into that, you know, who are here. But, but that, that is the way that we we want to stop feeling. We can do that in various different ways. Just avoid experience. Yeah. So the Buddha talked about that as just as different character types, saying you know there are those who, who delight in being, who relish being, and then when when the Dhamma is explained, they they think it's to them they. they but for the letting go of becoming, then they they wail and moan and go, "Oh, this is all about annihilation. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna die, and everything will be lost." And then he says, on the other hand, those who um, who relish the idea of, of annihilation, then they they hear the the dhamma being taught, and they they thought, "Well, this is just eternalism. I hate this. This is all wrong," <laughs> because 
when the body dies, that's it. It's all over. We're gone and we're finished. And there's nothing afterwards. It, it's, uh, there, there's nothing. There's no. Re- there's nothing real. There's no ultimate reality. It's just... so. The, even in the Buddha's time, there were existentialists. Yeah, sort of nihilistic types. So it's more to do with character type than particularly about that other teaching. Just seeing that sometimes we like the thrill of becoming, and sometimes we just want to be wiped out. And sometimes both in the same evening, <laughs> or both in the same conversation. You know, that you're you, you engage in a, in a dialogue with someone, and and you're thinking that they're really they really like you and that you're saying some wise things and that they, they appreciate you and they're kind of smiling and you think, oh, this is great. You know? So you sort of charge your head and you start telling your favorite story and then, then they start looking over their shoulder or looking at the floor and looking at their watch and, and then you think, oh dear, I can't, I'm halfway through this story and I can't stop and they're looking really bored. I want to die. How can I get out of here? <laughs> right? So these are not remote concepts. These are very everyday activities. You know? So, getting a feel for that which is neither becoming nor not becoming, that, that, that timeless quality, whereby we, we're not investing in that, that sort of relishing of, of being. So by letting go of that, we, in a way, we wake up to what we truly are, to discover the self, you forget the self, right? You Zeniza always say. <laughs> Um, well, it's usually mentioned first because it's the one that gets all the, the cover stories in the papers. <laughs> and isn't it kind of like a becoming, wanting a sense of pleasure is a wanting an experience of becoming? Yeah, it's, it's the coarsest uh, mm. kind of uh, accessible form of, um, of, in a way, that, that giving you a, a, a feeling of identity. The other is also um, getting angry. You know, that... that some many people get a, a feeling of, of of well-being, completeness only when they're upset about something. I think that's one of the reasons why people are really irritated with Mr. Obama, not getting angry about the oil spill. That you know he should be getting angry, <laughs> but he's just being wise to me. He's just I'm just trying to take care of the problem, you know. <laughs> but people are, uh, identify getting angry with with being fully engaged. And that, that's oftentimes for people, that's when they really feel alive, is when they're, they're, they're full of righteous indignation, they're stirred up, and it's, it's delicious. <laughs> I mean, I'm not an angry type myself, you know, that's so, but for some people, that's, that's it. Others are more greed types, and the feeling of, yes, comes with sense, des- you know, gratifying sense desire. Uh, but the, so Bhavatana and Vibhavatana, they're more subtle. There's, there's other ones like um, sense desire and uh, aggression. They're much sort of coarser surface level um, ways, but they but they are feeding on that same basic principle of wanting to to feel whole and be. Uh, but the others are, are more subtle, and in a way, they're they're more the the obstructions to meditation practice. If we get, really get a, a sense of of that because wanting to become concentrated, wanting to become wise, wanting to become a Zen master, wanting to become a Dharma teacher, wanting to become a, um, a good yogi, wanting to uh, to uh, uh, become all these wholesome things—they're there in the lists of you know, <laughs> all the things that the Buddha is encouraging. 
but there's a there's a huge difference between right effort, which is part of the eightfold path, and becoming and the desire to get rid of because the desire to get rid of your distractive thoughts to get rid of greed, hatred and delusion to get rid of, of your habits of lust and anger and, and selfishness you can say well look it's all on the list the Buddha is telling us to do this but it's interesting that the word for meditation or cultivation is bhavana which is directly connected to bhava they're, they're like like a live, net, live nettle and a dead nettle they're, they look just like each other bhava, bhavana and bhava but they're, they're like the left and the right hand, they're actually completely opposite. They look like each other, but they're, they're the opposite of each other. And so, right effort is defined as restraining the unwholesome from arising, or if the unwholesome has arisen, letting it go. Bringing the wholesome into being, and if the wholesome is already arisen, maintaining it. Sangvara, restraining, pahana, letting go, bhavana, development, anurakana, protection. So, the, and the difference between right effort and bhavatanha vi bhavatanha is that those the desire to become and the desire to get rid of are always tied up with a sense of self. And right effort, making making the effort to cultivate the good and let go of the of the harmful, to um, to develop concentration and insight and so forth, that has no sense of self in it. So they can look very, very close, to, very, very like each other, but there's a categorical difference between the two. And so that's why getting a, f- a feeling for the, the flavor, the aroma of bhava <laughs> is so helpful because it slides in and says, well, I'm just, trying to co- I'm just trying to get jhana. I'm just trying to be a good yogi. I'm just trying to be a helpful member of Vipassana Santa Cruz. I'm not, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing. <laughs> and so it's not a matter of being... Um, uh, not doing, not trying to be useful and <laughs> helpful, but seeing. Oh, when I'm praised for the the way I cleaned up the floor, or I'm praised for uh, how good my meditation is, the praise is sweet. But I don't have to make a big deal out of it. I don't have to stop sweeping the floor because I got conceited when I was praised for it. <laughs> the trick is sweep the floor and let go of the conceit. <laughs> so that getting a, a sense of where the bhava and vipava tanha, where they creep in, and, and kind of getting to know the aroma. It's, ah, okay, that's where I'm suddenly proud of, look at the way I sweep this floor, I'm so mindful. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Mary Grace is really impressed. I mean, I can see that she's looking at me. <laughs> she knows just how mindful I'm being. You know. And then, to, what's that smell? <laughs> you, know, you know what's crept in there. And so I think, okay, just sweep the floor and shut up. <laughs> Leave it alone. <laughs> just sweep the floor. Just let's make it simple. So then it becomes a, a tremendous blessing to be able to to to, re- to recognize that and let it go. And then the, the floor sweeping and happening, and you can be praised or criticized or just not even noticed. And uh, and you're you're at ease with it. It's peaceful in the beginning, peaceful in the middle, and peaceful at the end. Yeah, you're you're at home with the whole thing. So I see the, um, speaking of conventions and such like, the, uh, the clock has wound its way around to 4.30-ish, just before. So um, we, can ha- we can wind up our um, 
event today. I'd like to finish with chanting the sharing of blessings. Are you, you guys familiar with that? Well, I can do it. And you can just hum along. Let's lip sync. To share the blessings is a traditional practice that we do. So whatever goodness has come from our time together, whatever benefit has arisen in our lives and whatever lives we might touch and affect, may uh, may that goodness reach into all corners of the, the world, the universe, and so that uh, our uh, our efforts are not just for ourselves, our so-called selves. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed as a protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. So, very lovely to be with you all, and uh, may we also spend some time together tomorrow, if possible. And otherwise, please come and visit England. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there are a few other events in the Bay Area. Um, at uh, Spirit Rock on the 20th, I have a day long there, which is on the theme of um, compassion in action, I think. And then... Um, on the 4th of July, if you're looking for a, a less raucous event, might be happening elsewhere, we have our, uh, the uh, official opening of our new uh, building that we've been constructing over the last couple of years at Abayagiri. This is a, 
up in the forest. It's a building as a, um, a utility building for uh, as a sewing room, uh, a, a meeting space, showers, toilets, bathroom, sick room, storage, uh, dying, all those kind of things. So it's got a, a. It's up in the forest, so that uh, where all the, the the cabins of the monks and, and, nun, and novices are, they have an easy access to that rather than having to come all the way down to the bottom of the hill for those things. So uh, that might not sound like a very glorious Fourth of July, but it'll probably be a lot more peaceful than parades <laughs> and so on. And then on the 18th, the weekend of the 17th and 18th at Bayagiri, we have an ordination ceremony, and that's also my final adieu to um, the community, and I'm aiming to be flying to England on the 20th of July. That's Le Grand Départ. So, please, show up if you can, otherwise, go out. <laughs> it would be really helpful if a whole bunch of us would stay and get the hall back in order and clean up. So, uh, and I will just beam at you and notice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. School points. So thank you, and I hope we see all of you tomorrow. I forgot to, to um, go through these uh, haikus. I did like this one, a bow to Ajahn Sumedho. Deep insight through long practice, it's like this. Laughing hard at one's own jokes. <laughs> he, la- he always laughs uproariously at the most dreadful corny jokes. <laughs> but he's, it's totally infectious. Yeah. Even when you've heard them 150 times, a thousand times already. Mm-hmm. So. Um, also, That's, there are, are vast numbers of books and CDs, more than when you sat down a little bit ago, over here. So that are a gift to all of us from the monastery. So if you would like to peruse them and find something to take home, that would be great. Okay, please. And you can't be greedy. So, which means take as many as you want. One count is three. Very great. No, no, the cushion should stay in place and the little map is over here so that they'll be ready for us. Oh, so you don't want to sweep? No, I don't.